ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 2nd of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Buildings have collapsed, the power is out and tens of thousands of people have fled to higher ground after a powerful earthquake rocked Japan's main island. At least four people are dead. The magnitude 7.6 quake was followed by dozens of smaller tremors. However, a tsunami warning has been downgraded. Correspondent Kathleen Calderwood has more. In Suzu City in central Japan, a woman surveys the damage. As she walks along, the road is broken into sheets under her feet. Water is everywhere and roofs and homes have collapsed. Other videos on social media and local news show homes and cars swaying side to side and roads where entire lanes have completely fallen away. Tourist Baldwin Chia is in Nagano on a snowboarding trip but was taking a break from the slopes when the earthquake hit. The whole room was shaking, the TV was shaking. Uh, my friends were, were outside, uh, still outside, so my first uh, instinct was also just to, to, to text them uh, to see if they're OK. It is quite scary. The magnitude 7.6 quake struck just after 4pm and was felt across much of the country, including in Tokyo. There have been tsunami waves more than a metre high and near the epicentre in Ishikawa prefecture, the quake reached the highest level on Japan's seismic scale. For the first time since the 2011 earthquake and tsunami which killed thousands, a major tsunami warning was issued but was later downgraded to a lower level warning. Japanese Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshimasa Hayashi says authorities are working to identify all people who are unaccounted for. The specific details are currently unclear. We will continue to make all efforts to gather more information. Communications and water networks were affected and more than 30,000 homes were left without power. This quake was not as strong as the 2011 event which triggered the Fukushima nuclear disaster and Secretary Hayashi assured the public all nuclear plants are currently safe. Beginning with the Shika nuclear power plant, there are currently no reported irregularities with any of our plants. I humbly ask that all citizens be cautious of the risk of further earthquakes and request that everyone living in the area where powerful tremors took place to pay close attention to the local authorities' evacuation orders. There are warnings there could be aftershocks and more tsunami waves for some days. Stephen Nagy from Tokyo International Christian University says people are on edge but know how to respond. I think the biggest risk that may face the communities is the elderly. How do we deal with the elderly along the West Coast, in particular in those areas that have a lot of snow? I think that this will be a challenge for any community. Some areas in South Korea and Russia, which face the Sea of Japan, have also been given tsunami warnings or told to evacuate. This is Kathleen Calderwood reporting for AM. Thousands of Israeli soldiers are being shifted out of the Gaza Strip, the first significant drawdown of troops since the war with Hamas was sparked by its terrorist attacks on Israel. However, fierce fighting is still continuing in Gaza, with an Australian man among the Israeli troops who've been killed. 
Meanwhile, Israel's Supreme Court has struck down key parts of the Netanyahu government's controversial changes to the judicial system, which had sparked mass protests before the war began. Kathleen Ferguson reports. In a hospital in Gaza, people race to help those who've been hit in the latest airstrike. Children are being treated by doctors on the floor. This scenario looks likely to continue for these doctors and patients, with Israel signalling no end to fighting. But the calls to stop the bombardment are getting louder. Senior Associate Fellow Dr H.A. Hellier from the Royal United Services Institute spoke to Sky News. I think people have to, to recognise that this is a deeply troubling situation that we're in. Um, yep. and if we allow this to continue, more, uh, more chances and opportunities, unfortunately, for regionalisation of the conflict and escalation um, are just very likely. There are signs Israel's adjusting its tactics, though, with IDF troops being pulled out of parts of Gaza. But the redeployment was too late for Lior Savan, an Australian-born man who moved to Israel with his parents. He was a reservist called up to fight and was killed in Gaza last month. He had a wife and one child and was expecting another soon. Captain Savan is the first Australian to be killed since the conflict began in the Gaza Strip. Dr Hellier says taking troops out of Gaza does not come across as a sign of easing off. I don't think so, because they haven't said that this is part of redeployment as ter in terms of reducing or diminishing hostilities. On the contrary, you heard again recently from the finance minister, but also from the prime minister talking about how the, uh, the, the, the quote-unquote voluntary deportation huh, um, of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip is the long-term aim. He says there is really only one way to ease tensions. We see scores, hundreds of people dying every day, um, moving further into the winter, um, a humanitarian crisis underway, um, the vast majority of the world's nations calling for a ceasefire, huge swathes of our own security establishment and foreign policy establishment within the UK calling for a ceasefire. Israel is also telling some of its communities that were evacuated near the border with Gaza that they could soon return. Israel's Defence Minister is Yoav Gallant. I've just returned from the Gaza Strip where I met our troops. As they fight, they face our enemy, Hamas, and behind them are Israel's southern communities. They know their mission and their performance is excellent, so that here in our southern communities, life will return to its course in accordance with the recommendations given by the IDF and the defence establishment, we'll soon be able to return displaced communities in areas within range of four to seven kilometres north of the Gaza Strip. The first group of seven communities has already been decided and they've received the message. Kibbutz Dorot, where we are right now, is one of them. The National Reconstruction Administration, which is responsible for this, will handle the issue of education, so a gradual return will be possible. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is now facing another issue that has caused unrest. Changes he wanted to make to the court system, which would limit its powers, have been quashed by the Supreme Court. Eight of 15 justices ruled in favour of nullifying the law, according to the court. It said the majority of judges ruled to strike down the law because it would severely damage Israel's democracy. 
Kathleen Ferguson reporting. More heavy rain is forecast and there are flood warnings too for already waterlogged parts of southeast Queensland. There are also minor flood warnings in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Some residents who've been dealing with the deluge and power outages since Christmas Day say they're exhausted, as any guest reports. Since a Christmas night tornado hammered Harriet Shari Hughes's Gold Coast hinterland home, the deluge hasn't stopped. And it's just been pretty, pretty tough, actually. I'm, I'm totally exhausted now. I, I don't think Mother Nature could be more aggressive than she's been this Christmas. Um, it's been so tough. A thundercrack punctuates our phone call. And it's just been torrential rain, thunder and lightning non-stop. It may go calm just for about 15 minutes and then it starts again. So it just came in. Oh! Um, sorry, that caught me by surprise. What, was that another thunder? That was really loud. Yeah, that gave me a fright. Harriet Shari Hughes runs a pet motel near Tambourine and has been busy reassuring owners their animals are okay. The water everywhere, the, the paddocks are becoming lakes. I don't know, it's going to take months to get this place back to normal. Generator died and they've sold out generators and I managed to find one at some extortionate price. But my water pump from the kennel was just went underwater. Now it's shorting out the power for that. But obviously, I, I, it's a worry about everybody else in the area too. With hundreds of millimetres of rainfall, residents have been warned to shelter inside their homes or go to an evacuation centre. Flooding is cutting off roads both in southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales, not far from last year's floods. Here's SES Superintendent Scott McLennan. So the challenge for us is the extreme flash flooding event, which is actually affecting a lot of Queensland tourists to in and around the northern rivers. But most of those are actually either tourists being caught in flash flooding areas or tourists being caught on the sides and banks of creeks and causeways that they don't necessarily know. He says most of the rescues have been around Tumbolgum, Mwilumbar and Chillingham in the Tweed Valley, where some tourists woke with water in their tents at roadside campsites. So we've had a couple of people we've rescued from the top of their cars. We've had people that we've had to get out from besides their cars and assist them through those floodwaters, which are quite treacherous. With the ground already saturated... Authorities warn flash flooding is particularly dangerous. Any guest reporting. Housing shortages have hit almost every part of the country over the past year and regional Western Australia is no exception. It's so acute in the Shark Bay region that some people in the tourist hotspot are doing a four-hour commute to get to work. So to try to fix the problem, locals are trucking in pre-built homes. Xander Sapsworth-Collis reports. Liam Ridgely is showing me the floor plans for his future home, but there's a catch. The transportable houses, as you can see, they'd come in two trucks, two truck sections, and then the houses would be completely built in Jerton or Perth, and then they would truck them up the highway, bring them to Sharp Bay, and then offload them. It might seem like a drastic solution to a housing crisis, but it beats the four-hour commute he and his sister currently make from Geraldton. They run a Dugon sightseeing business in the coastal region of Shark Bay, which is an eight-and-a-half-hour drive north of Perth. Bought a 
a cheap ute just all it does is drive up and down the highway i take it up and she takes it back and, and then i move into the bedroom which she's been staying in for two weeks so uh at the back of my parents house or like if my parents have got guests there i've got to stay in the caravan or if uh the caravan's not there or something i sleep on the boat so it is a little bit difficult when you're trying to like as a new sort of take over a new business we don't have something as basic as accommodation sorted. You can only imagine the difficulties facing our employees, or potential employees. So the Ridgeleys have decided their new home should be a place for their workers as well. There's 600 ratepayers in Sharp Bay and there's 60 or so holiday homes. There's an unbeknownst number of Airbnbs. Going right for an Airbnb in Sharp Bay is about five to $600 just for the five days. So a lot of the homeowners there, if you're in that position, you would prefer to Airbnb it over rent it to, say, locals in, in the town, I think. The housing shortage is so bad here, would-be renters are placed on a waiting list. And Shark Bay's only real estate agent, Debbie Byer, says people are starting to get desperate. They come in on a regular basis and check, have you got anything now that's come available? Is there anything available? And all we can do is just reassure them and let them know that, yes, when we do have something available, we'll be in contact with them. But people are definitely in need. I'm renting at the moment and it's even a concern for me. If that person doesn't want to continue renting to me, I'm going to have to find somewhere else to live just like any other person that lives here in Shark Bay. The Shire of Shark Bay president, Dale Chapman, warns the shortage is also impacting the town's economy. There's also a, a real shortage of affordable accommodation for those types of workers in our tourism and hospitality sector. In an effort to increase the housing stock, the WA government recently introduced a $10,000 incentive scheme for holiday homeowners to convert their properties to long-term rentals. Dale Chapman says it's a start but he's not certain what its overall effectiveness will be. We have between sort of 45 and 50 short-term holiday homes. The impact that it will have is, is introduce a, a level of regulation around short-term accommodation that is, is probably lacking in a lot of jurisdictions as to whether it will have an impact on conversion of that holiday accommodation to long-term rentals, I, I, yeah, only time will tell. He says it's clear something needs to be done and trucking in homes to Shark Bay may be one solution to the housing crisis in this piece of paradise. Xander Sapsworth Collis reporting. An independent assessment commissioned by the Northern Territory Government has backed an environment group's findings that a cotton industry could damage the Territory's rivers and aquifers. Jane Barden explains. The Pew Charitable Trust's 2022 report forecasts the NT government's plan to develop a major new cotton industry would jeopardise NT river systems and threaten biodiversity. The report called on the government to stop extra water being given out in the Daly and Roper River areas and to dump its new rules, allowing 5% of floodplain waters to be harvested in dams. Mitch Hart is the Trust's NT manager. We hear them talking down the environmental impacts and I think what we'd call for is for the Northern Territory Government to realise we've got a unique opportunity not to repeat the Murray-Darling mistakes. The Pew Trust has now discovered through a Freedom of Information request that the NT government gave Charles Darwin University a $35,000 contract to fact-check whether its report claims were based on reputable scientific references. The university found that the majority of the report was supported by the references used, including conclusions that harvesting 500 billion litres of water from the Daly River floodplains could have major impacts on wetlands and rivers, like luring fish and bird breeding. I think it shows that there's a lot more concern in making sure that groups that put pressure on, they're looking to trip them up rather than getting on with the work of open, transparent data about why governments are making decisions about increased water extraction, why governments are allowing more land clearing through. The university levelled minor criticism. 
that in some instances the report's interpretation of references tended towards the greater potential consequences. The NT's industry and Chief Minister Eva Lawler says the university was asked to probe the report to obtain an objective peer-reviewed assessment of its contents and to confirm or rebut the science. We want to see our rivers continue to flow <laughs> and not be impacted. The government in the past has really given the impression that those green groups are being alarmist about the water needs of cotton. Do you think they're being alarmist? No, no. I think as a government we absolutely want to make sure the Territory's pristine environment is maintained, but we always have to balance that with uh, future development. The NT Farmers Association President Simon Smith is adamant the new industry won't damage the environment. Certainly development comes with some small cost and we acknowledge that capturing overland flow does reduce some of the flow into rivers. I think environmentalists need to step back and have a look at we too care about the country and farmers try and do things sensibly but we also as a territory we need to see development and I think people need to step back and really actually have a look at what the cotton industry can do for the territory. NT Farmers Association President Simon Smith speaking with Jane Barden. As thousands of people flock to summer music festivals, experts are urging partygoers to stay safe. It comes as several governments issue warnings about recreational drug use, as Eliza Getsy reports. Happy New Year, let's prop! It's a tradition for many Australians, marking the end of one year and the fresh start of another with music, friends and fun. Are you planning on having a big night tonight? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Some people try and, you know, get on the drugs and all that type of stuff, but we're all here just to have a party. That's all it is. New Year's, may as well get lit. I'm at the gates of a music festival in inner Sydney, where thousands of people are gearing up to party into the night. Among a sea of colourful outfits, there are a handful of police, a sniffer dog and friendly peer support ambassadors. Hey, sunscreen or lollies, guys, before you head in. This summer, state government health departments are warning recreational drug users of drugs that might contain substances that are different and potentially more dangerous than what they're advertised to be. That includes multiple types of high-dose MDMA tablets found in New South Wales, heroin sold as cocaine... And harm reduction organisation DanceWise has warned of undeclared opioids found in black market vapes. The next time you're at a festival, you might see someone who's not so much focused on dancing. Philip Wads is an associate professor of criminology at the University of New South Wales. He's a regular at festivals like yesterday's Field Day in Sydney's Domain, where he researches behaviour. One of the biggest things that's caused some of the greatest harms um, over the last few years has been that festival patrons are just not as aware of the different drug effects and also what to do in situations where they may be feeling a bit off. And they also might not feel confident in how to advise others that they're going with um, about what to do. Professor Wads is a harm minimisation advocate following research that shows while it's virtually impossible to stop everyone taking drugs, Educating people can ensure they do it as safely as possible. Another part of that strategy is pill testing, which isn't yet happening in New South Wales. Professor Wads hopes the tide is turning across Australia. We've just seen the successful tender in Queensland. We're hoping to see New South Wales adopt the policy because we know not only does it um, provide really critical interventions on site at festivals and other spaces, but it also allows us to inform health and the broader public about substances that are in the market 
that are hazardous. He also wants to see a softer approach to police presence at festivals that he says would save lives. Having police, you know, around the grounds and, and possibly in the vicinity of a medical tent or of the harm reduction tent does act as a barrier to access. Paramedics say heat-related illnesses are the most common incident they see at festivals. Professor Wads says it's essential to stay hydrated, seek shade and take regular time out during a long day of partying. In October, New South Wales Health Minister Ryan Park said pill testing was not a silver bullet to prevent drug-related harm. A New South Wales government spokesperson says it plans to bring experts together for a drug summit to find solutions to make festivals safer. No date's been set yet. Eliza Getzey reporting. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.